I'm going to invite you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. To really appreciate the book of Colossians, you've got to know what Paul is addressing and how he's speaking to the needs of the people in, in the Colossian church, how the Holy, why the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write what he's writing, because it helps us understand how it applies to us today. And in the book of Colossians is written to address a problem to those who have become believers and followers of Christ, and they're excited about their faith, but in the process of being converted to following Christ, they have also had to deal with various other thoughts, philosophies, and ideas infiltrating the church. And so, as we look at this, I think you need to understand the book of Colossians was written to basically address the Colossian heresy. You need to understand what that is, because you won't really get the impact of what he's saying. Everything he says, obviously, because inspired by the Holy Spirit, is important. But he's talking about in this day, and I'm, I'm going to do it briefly, but in this time frame, in this culture, there was a, a heresy that was rising and affecting a lot of the the, the, the Christian movement of that day. The, the, Coloss, the, the Colossian heresy deals with basically a group of people that, that basically had two thoughts that kind of came together. It was uh, some, some, those with Jewish background and Judaism that was trying to incorporate a sense of legalism and a sense of rituals and rules based on uh, Old Testament only and not allowing for the freedom that comes from the spirit of the New Testament. And they were bringing the traditions of Judaism to bear heavily on the new freedom in Christianity. Jesus would talk about trying to put uh, new, new wine and old wineskins. It just won't work. And so, they, but they're trying to incorporate and bring this together. And, and they have a, it was a group that had some mysticism about them. And they were talking about mystical experiences and, and, and visions and things of this nature. So they could come together and, and basically uh, begin to influence wrongly these group of believers. And they had, uh, uh, then you had uh, also they exalted uh, angels in a very great way. They had, they, uh, they weren't, they were, uh, weren't real big on Jesus. Kind of odd in a Christian church, isn't it? We have that today. And so, and then you have uh, those that were kind of bent toward intellectualism. The, the Judaism was more of religious in, impact and infection. And then you had those who were very intellectual and they wanted to bring in knowledge and they wanted to be puffed up with their pride of having knowledge. As a matter of fact, they also exalted angels and they also ha- felt that God, as they begin to try to define how the creator could allow evil to exist, did he create evil? Questions people ask today. And they finally determined that God was limited in his creation and that and angels were actually agents of creation and not Jesus, and they basically uh, talked about the pride of having superior knowledge more than most. There was a small group of people that said, we know something you don't know. We have something you don't have. We have this great intellect. We have this great knowledge and understanding, and, and so we have this and you don't, therefore, you know, we know more than you know. And this is what was happening, and it began to, people began to filter into the church and begin to talk about this. 
And so now Paul is addressing this, and this is why everything he says is so important. It's based against that. Now, what I've just described to you was happening 2,000 years ago, but guess what? Welcome to the 21st century. For today, in our culture, in our climate here, there are those that have bring different views to the table about Christianity, about Jesus. The question, when you talk to people, do you believe in Jesus? They may say, which one? Because there are many being presented today. There's many writings that have come forward and been a part of people's consideration for truth. And, and, and there's many things that are challenging the uh, values of Christianity that have been standing for 2,000 years. So let's take a look at this. I want you to learn today. And I want you to kind of grab hold because this is where we are in America. This is where we are in the world. Never been in a place like this before here. So it's exciting, but we need to be well equipped for it and well prepared for it and understand what it is. Uh, one of the things that they did in, in these groups is they rejected the necessity of a blood sacrifice. They basically had vegetarian diets and they were trying to be healthy and intellectual and all those things. And, and there's nothing wrong to be healthy or smart. But they were trying to do it for self-development and circumventing the, the cross of Christ and what he said. So I want to look at this, chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 1, as I talk about a foundation for fulfillment. Because there is a real possibility of deception, there must be the reality of a sure foundation. We have to know on, on whom we rest, on where our hope and faith is anchored, because the times are coming when it will certainly feel the winds of various doctrines. My concern is basically for our generation that's probably 30 and under that are being bombarded. If you've been to college, you've been bombarded with some of the things I'll talk about. If you've been around anywhere where people like to think and talk, you're going to hear these things in the workplace and in in the recreational centers and the places where you have your hobbies and recreation. People are going to talk about, well, I don't, here's what I think about God. Here's what I've read. How do you deal with that? And what do we need to know about that? Well, as we look at this, I want to first of all see uh, a matter of affection. If you look at verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. For those in Laodicea, we know about the Laodicean church from Revelation. They had become a, a lukewarm church. More were lost than saved in that church. All right, And for all who have not seen me in prison, he said, but I have a burden that I see things changing and I want us to deal with that. And he said, for all who have not seen me in prison. I want to look at that. First of all, there's, this is a matter of affection. He says, I have such affection for you. I am struggling as I think about you. I have a burden for you. I have an inner conflict of soul about you emotionally and spiritually because I'm concerned about your spiritual health. I see that there are things that are troubling you, and, and, and I want you to know I'm struggling with that. So I, I think there's, there's four things we need to see under this matter of affection. Number one is a sincere diligence for spiritual courage. Verse two, I want their hearts to be encouraged. I, I want their hearts to be very said, I'm praying, and I, I want you to know I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to have a strength in your inner person, not your heart muscle. That's good that it's strong, but he's talking about the inner you, the, the, the seat of will and emotion and decision and conviction. 
understanding. He says, I want that to be strong. And it's strong in its faith and strong in the person of Christ. So we talk about this and the struggles addressed in Paul's prayer life. He's praying for this in their lives. And I think one of the greatest ways we demonstrate our affection for one another is praying for one another. I have been overwhelmed at those who would come to me and say, Pastor, we're praying for you. We're praying for Vicky. We're praying for Charlene. We pray. And I know there's Sunday school classes that pray for us. I know there's individuals that pray for us. And, and uh, I just tell you, it is great because in that, I draw strength from what you're praying. Prayer is how we show our affection for one another. So when someone says, would you pray for me? They're asking for your affection. And that's very, very important. He says, I ha- I'm, I'm affected. I-, I have a great affection for you. And I tell you guys, understand, the affection of parents, pastors, and friends cause struggle for concern over spiritual health. As a pastor, there's times I wrestle as I realize some of you are not doing well. Some of you are living in a state of spiritual compromise. Some of you are living in spiritual bondage, and you don't know how to get out. You seem to be overwhelmed, and I'm concerned. I pray for you. I try to talk to you. And I realize that, that somehow there's a great warfare going on in your life, and it's going to kill you if you don't change. So I, I realize that. And I just want to talk to you very honestly today. It's like that in every church. I talk to pastors all the time. And, and it is sad what's, what's taking place because our, the spiritual health of many people are at risk. They're struggling. They're genuinely struggling. And so as we look at this, we have this affection for you and concern. We want you to be strong at heart. We want you to be encouraged. Simply saying, I don't want you to lose heart. Sometimes the battle's so fierce and so real, and you seem to fail so much, it's easy to lose heart. I don't want you to lose heart. I want you to be encouraged. Cults and false teachers capitalize on fear. That's why he's talking about courage is so important. Cults and false teachers capitalize on fear. God has never, ever given us a spirit of fear. Now, we have a a reverential respect and reverence for God that is described as fear. I have fear of who he is and what he can do. But I'm not supposed to walk around in fear of the economy, fear of politics, fear of war, fear of what some may do to me. I reject that. That's not from the Lord. I don't have to be afraid of demons. I don't have to be afraid of the devil. I understand that I am blood-bought, covered by the blood, sealed and secure until eternity comes, and I'll spend forever with him. And so I don't have to walk in fear. I'm not afraid whether people like me or not. It doesn't matter. I just tell you, we don't, he never gives, gives us a spirit of fear. And if we ever make decisions by fear, we're going to be moving the wrong way. Always. Oh, I'm afraid. This, what, are you, what are you afraid of? God's in control. And so he's saying, guys, I don't want you to be, be afraid. Don't lose heart. Have a heart of courage. I tell you this because people have become afraid and, and, and those who teach false things capitalize on fear. There's a second thing, a simple directive for spiritual connection. Look at this. I want them joined together in love. Wow. It's a simple directive, isn't it? Just love one another. And here's what he's saying. Now I said, and don't, uh, don't lose heart, but also don't go it alone. 
It's a journey that's requiring fellowship. Do not go it alone. Do not travel alone. If you're struggling, don't struggle alone. If you're failing, talk some wind. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. But you do not go, I'm just going to isolate myself and withdraw and then I'll be okay. No, that won't work. That won't work at all. So as we look at this, he's saying don't go it alone. Join together in love. Isolation is not a good thing. Connect with spirit-controlled followers of Christ. Commit to a local body of believers in the local church. He's saying, don't try to walk this journey or fight this battle by yourself, but come together and be a part of a congregation and of a community in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Do you know that here is what I see more than anything else? Again, cults and false teachers promote isolation. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. The devil's been doing this for years with world systems and world philosophies. He's saying, look, if I can just withdraw you from that influence that is contrary to what we want you to do. In other words, I want to isolate you from your parents, your friends, your pastor, and they pull you away. Isolation is one of the key ingredients of occult identification. And it's happening today as we say people pull away and withdraw while we're connected, technically, better than we've ever been, emotionally, we're not connected very well. You can tell someone something uh, through a text message or Facebook or Twitter and never show emotion or the deep feeling of who you really are. Nothing wrong with those things, but you're losing contact with the emotion of people. And so you find that this is where we are today. He's saying, guys, I want you to make sure you're connected. Connected. Don't go it alone. The third thing is a strong desire for spiritual comprehension. Look what else he says. So that they may have all the riches of assured understanding. And the knowledge, the full knowledge is what it means in the Greek of God. The full knowledge. That they would have it all. Uh, all knowledge, not just some, but all that's contained in Christ. So we look at this. He says, look, I want you to know that there's a strong desire for you to have spiritual comprehension. Don't stay in the dark. You ought to be learning more about your spiritual life. Grow in assurance, that means conviction in the truth of God. I begin to study God's Word because I want to, because I enjoy it, because it feeds my soul. And guys, if you think that coming here on Sunday morning hearing one sermon is going to take care of your appetite and your needs all week, you're wrong. You need to be, you need to be reading and cultivating your spiritual life. And, and you need to be sharp, become sharp by talking to people and, and just hanging around people and asking questions and, and discussing what you've learned with others. And, and, um, and, and then Sunday school, you want to come to Sunday school because you get to talk about things and ask questions. So we, we, we see, and we got classes we do at night and training. We do various things trying to build the body of Christ up. That we want you to become very sharp in your comprehension and, and, and very strong in what you know about the Lord and spiritual things. I, I, all week, I just go around and find, I like to talk with people. I enjoy, I enjoy John, uh, God for less, it's his store, he and Phil, Shane worked there, and, and uh, I just like to go by 
uh, just to sometimes talk with them because we, we sometimes talk about spiritual stuff. And they tell me what they're learning, and, and I'll go, man, that is so great. And we'll talk. Sometimes we'll just sit and talk for 15, 20 minutes, and it's, and, and, uh, and it's just an awesome thing because we're sharpening one another. See, I like that. Uh, they'll ask questions or they'll tell me what they're learning. I think it's great. I go by other places of businesses. I try to go by and just drop in and see people because I want to I say, hey, how's it going? What's going on? And, and so in doing that, we, we grow as we talk with one another and share spiritual truth. I don't want to hear about you griping and complaining. I'm just going to tell you. That don't help me any. Hey, if you got a burden, I want to know about it. But if you just want to complain and gripe, you're, you're missing the point of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to sharpen one another, not dull one another. So I, I'm telling you, that's how the church gets strong in its comprehension of spiritual understanding. We learn, we hear things, we go, I may study that. I'm not sure about that. Let me work on that. Man, I'm reading stuff all the time. I, I'm reading usually four or five books at a time because I'm saying, Lord, I want to understand what's happening today and what's happening on our college campuses and where's the mind of that 25-year-old today because they're not seeming to respond to the gospel as they should. What do we need to know? Man, it ain't, it ain't like it used to be. Wish it was, but it didn't. There's a warfare going on that's like number four in our time. And we need to sharpen our instruments if we're going to win it. And so, here we go. Iron sharpens iron. And then there's another thing. Boy, I, you know, I get kind of excited there. I, remember this letter. is about the identity of Jesus as Lord and God. Non-Christian worldviews exploit those with shallow spiritual understanding. It's about who he is. And cults and false teachers will begin to somehow exploit those with just a little knowledge, a shallow knowledge, and begin to lead them away from the true doctrine of who Jesus Christ is, who God really is, and what salvation really is. That's why this is such a great book, because it applies today. Which Jesus are people believing in today? The one from the Gospel of Thomas, or the secret Gospels of Mark, or the Nagamati, or from the Bible, which Jesus are they believing today? The Gnostic Gospel Jesus? Oh. The teachings of Buddha? The writings of Islam? And then there should be a solid devotion to the saving Christ. Look what he says. That you may have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Christ is the mystery. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. He said, man, devote yourself to Christ. Because everything you need to know about spiritual life, about God, about eternity, about salvation, about spiritual living is found in the fullness of Christ because he is also the very essence of God in the fullness of God. That's what the first chapter talks about. And everything you need to know about God's in Christ because they're one and the same. They're the same essence, not similar substance as some would like to say. As a matter of fact, in this time from in Colossae, they were saying, well, he's a similar substance, but not the same essence. Well, the language doesn't bear that thought out at all. It's impossible to get there from what the Bible says in the original language. And so as you look at this, there's a solid devotion to the saving Christ. 
Don't miss Jesus. He's our source for spiritual rescue and knowledge. Our faith is to be anchored in biblical revelation, not human reason. I'm not to be caught up in what people are thinking in philosophy. I want to know what the Bible says. And it's amazing, just say, let me say this, how many times we as Christians misquote the Bible and misunderstand it. We say stuff it doesn't ever say because it seems to be just a little bullet thing we throw out there. We, we need to understand the Bible is written in context and setting it, and we need to get to the truth of what it means and how it was written and what it was addressing when it was written, and we got to deal with that, and sometimes we just throw stuff out there that they go, man, that don't make sense, and we go, well, that's what the Bible says, and they're going, oh, I didn't think it said that. And the truth is, they may be more right than we are because we've taken something out of context, and we wonder why they don't want to listen to us. And while they're confused about the Jesus they're trying to find because we can't quote Scripture correctly. We proof text. We go, man, that's what I believe because just one verse said so. You need to to defend what you believe by about 5, 10, 15 verses, incidentally. If you're going to talk today, because they're reading books that are this thick. You come up with one little verse, they're going, so what? Man, you need to know what, why you believe. You need to have a lot of, a lot of ammunition because we're in a war. I want to talk about not only the matter of affection that we realize where we're supposed to be, but also a method of deception, the methods of deception. For he goes into this. He says that our knowledge is in Christ, and any knowledge that's outside of Christ is certainly faulty. The minute I dismiss him as God in the flesh, I'm no, I'm no longer traveling a, a safe path in my spiritual journey. The minute I dismiss that salvation by grace and faith alone, I, I'm no longer traveling a safe journey. The minute I substitute ceremonialism and ritualism and traditionalism, liberalism, humanism in the place of genuine biblical authority, I'm traveling in a dangerous place. So, I want to talk about the methods of deception because Paul is going to talk about that here. I'm saying this, verse 4, so that no one will deceive you with, number one, persuasive argument. That word deceive means to lead astray spiritually, to lead away from the truth. Now, this is interesting because he's saying to the church that's in love with Jesus, you need to be careful because people can lead you from the truth of who Christ is, what he can really do, and how you're really supposed to live. He says, look at this. Deception leads to confusion, compromise, conflict, and ultimately spiritual captivity. Starts out as, I don't know what I believe. I, I got to think on this a while. And, and, and you look at this and you go, well, how does that work? And you begin to get confused about what you believe. And then you compromise what you believe. And then you, have, you kind of fight over others that disagree with you. And then there's this ultimately spiritual captivity. You're in bondage. Now you have no freedom in Christ. You have no no. You have grieved the Holy Spirit. He's not working in your life. Now, there's people all around us that live that way. There's people in church that live that way. There's some of you that live that way today. You're under captivity, under bondage. And so, Lord, don't want you to live there. He wants you to have an abundant life. He, his son has freed. He's free indeed. 
But what about this persuasive argument? They entice with speculation and arguments from false religions, various rituals, the legalism of Judaism and the, and the very arguments of Judaism based on the traditions of the, of the Pharisees and religion without a relationship. They, say, they talk about you can have all this stuff and it really don't bear down on relationships. They, they talk about a lot of things you can know, a lot of things you can experience, but they don't count if they don't tie to Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, guys, here's what I want you to know. You need to get this. This is, this is how they begin. They begin to speculate things. And they say things that are enticing. You go, okay, that might could be true. Well, you know, and, and guys, we've been, we've been letting this happen back when we went to sleep. And one day they started saying, you know, we're just going to teach evolution as a fact. And the church did nothing. We didn't say a word. They just taught evolution to our kids. And, and now it's not even allowed to have a rival viewpoint in most educational systems. To have another thought. It's just accepted as fact. Now, I want you to understand the very basis of evolution is based on those guys who are atheistic in their philosophies. And the, the, for them to do away with the accountability and the reality of God was to say there was no God in the beginning. And if you boil down evolution, there's a lot to say about it, but basically it was, it was the birth of those who did not want to acknowledge God. And we've allowed that trash to be taught for several decades. And we wonder why our kids are the way they are. One of those generations is the way it is. Well, the arguments are there. They're drawn into them. Arguments about the identity of Christ, the zeal that comes from being religious or committed or sincere or dedicated. I have a friend of mine, I'll never forget when we were from the same church, hometown in Mableton, and he was a little older than me, and, and uh, he was excited. Our church, you know, God had worked our church in many ways, and, and, and uh, he was, felt the Lord was calling him into the ministry. Went to college. State University, after one and a half years, he now was confused about what he thought about God. He no longer believed the things and the tenets of his faith, and ministry was the farthest thing from his mind. And when he graduated from college, he didn't find his way back to church. His beliefs had been attacked, and unfortunately for him, they were shattered. Today, our, the age under 30 is so vulnerable to being deceived. Hear me. See, if you're, if you're my age and and, and you know, and, and and you know, you're over thirty, and you're over fifty, and you're you know, whatever, and over seventy. We don't, you know, we ain't, ain't nobody going to deceive us. But the group coming, we got two generations coming that they're just sitting ducks, and we keep doing church as usual. We think, well, you know, I got it, I survive. The world's different. I promise, it's a lot different than when you and I traveled the paths of of, of high school and college. And the corporate world. 
and it's changing more every day. Our country has changed greatly over the last few years, and not in a good way. Well, I want to go to philosophical awareness because it goes on. For I be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit. Rejoice to see your, your good order and the strength of your faith in Christ. Not only is there that persuasive argument that comes, but there's a philosophical awareness that people have, have and deal with. There's so many things to read. There's so many things you can hear. There's so many self-help books that basically tap into intellectualism and humanism. Basically saying that knowledge is the source for fulfillment in human, and, and humanity is, the, is where the difference is really made in life. And so, and, and hey, there's nothing wrong with learning. There's not a thing wrong with learning. But what kind of knowledge are you learning? Because you eat a lot from a garbage can does me, doesn't mean you're having a healthy life. And the truth is, when you feed off things other than the truth that comes from the revealed Word of God, you're eating out of garbage cans concerning true spiritual matters. You may eat a lot of it. And it may fill your stomach, but it doesn't mean you're healthy. And so we look at this philosophical awareness. People say, well, what about this then? What about that? What about the, the Gospel of Thomas? And, and what about the Nagamati that's got 16 Gospels that, are, that now say they rival the Gospels of the New Testament? What about those? Well, if, if you study them, you go, that's, man, they're pretty sad. They're not coherent, they're not consistent, and they're not truth. They will not stand up under scholarship or examination according to Scripture, according to even language, or according to the time in which it was supposed to be written. They don't, have, they don't stand up. And yet no one is saying that. We just go, I don't know about that. Our young people are going, what do you think about that? And sometimes the pride of being intellectual or being considered intellectual or tolerant, we sometimes... Let these things slide without honest discussion, and deep discussion. And then there's provocative allurement, mysticism, the desire for the spiritual mysteries and supernatural manifestations. Man, just I want to see something that's out of the ordinary, something unusual. I, I want to see something that makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I want something that causes goosebumps all over me. And so we go for these experiences. That's what they were. Colossi was fighting this. They were going, well, these people have these kind of things. Surely that must be truth. Experience never determines truth. Truth always validates experience. You can have experiences apart from truth. Truth is true. It's a universal truth. There was a time when people believed that God the Creator embodied all universal truth. That's being challenged greatly today. Now there's truth for you and truth for me. Worst thing we ever started happening is when we would sit around Bible discussion and say, what does that verse say to you? Well, what kind of question is that? 
That's not the important thing, what it says to you. It's what, is the, what does it say? That's where you start. What does that verse say? How do you apply it? But I don't want a private interpretation. I want to know what it says. And then we'll talk about it. Because I, the, the people say, well, it's just relative. It's what I think, what I feel. It doesn't matter what you think, what you feel. The thing is, truth is truth. And so we see this in the provocative allurement of things that seem to draw people in, excite people, sensationalism, pluralism, many ways to heaven. That certainly is attractive and alluring. Universalism, everyone's okay, we're all going to make it. No. Do you know the, the thing that popped up in Colossae and during this time period was a, a movement in mystical Judaism called Kabbalah? Historically, I, this is kind of one of the grassroots of it, Kabbalah, the beginning of it. Does that name ring a bell with anybody? Madonna's bought into it completely. Man, she donates bunches of money to build temples because she's found truth. It's amazing. That's the same era that the Apostle Paul was dealing with 2,000 years ago. But it sure has become attractive today in the 21st century. Now, you know, I don't want to give you a lesson on Kabbalah, but I'm going to tell you whatever truth you discovered ain't changed your life. So there's something missing there. What kind of truth is that? And so we, we, we look at this, we go, you know, this is where we battle today. Well, let me go to the last thing, the means of progression. And I'll cover these very quickly. The means of progression. He says, okay, here's what happens. So that you have a sure foundation in the midst of all that's taking place. I want you to look at this. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, the Lord, that means God in the flesh, walk in him. That faith that led you to a personal relationship, that faith should not be abandoned now. Walk in him, rooted and built up and established. Now, I want to give you those that rooted means grounded in Jesus. Rooted is one of those, you understand that you got to get rooted deep in the ground, have deep roots, healthy roots. Grounded in Jesus, saved and secure, we produce spiritual fruit because of spiritual root. We are rooted. That is a perfect participle in the language, which means something took place in the past but affects the present. Something happened back here, but because of the root, it's affecting me today and it'll affect me tomorrow. That's what that means. So what happened back then has affected me every day of my life. So I tell you, if you say, you know, I got saved 20 years ago, but it ain't changed your life. It ain't affecting you today. There's something wrong with what you talked about 20 years ago. Because the language says if there's a root, then there's a fruit. And it's working in your life regularly. You need to be grounded in Jesus. And so you make sure you feed on what will strengthen your roots in Jesus. And look, my marriage, I was married 35 years ago this June. Is that right? <laughs> Never know. I get a little confused up here sometimes. No, I was just, just checking to make sure she's listening, actually. Uh, 35 years ago, June the 2nd, that was something that happened back here. But it's been a present participle in my life because it affects me today. 
I act and think like I'm married today because I was married 35 years ago. Understand? That's what it means in the perfect participle. Something happened back then affects you today. All right? It goes on. So you need to make sure you're grounded in Jesus. Have you, do you really know the Lord? Is he working in your life daily? If you've got to go back 35 years to figure out if you're saved, you may be in trouble. I ain't got to go back 35 years to figure out if I'm married. I know that daily. Growing in Jesus. Okay, here we go. Not only are you rooted, look at this, but you're built up. And this is a present participle. All right? Uh, and it talks about something that conti- has continuous action in my life. So not only am I constantly afraid of what happened at some time in the past, but now I'm also presently, consistently being built up. There's a work of grace in my life constantly. There's a knowledge flowing to me regularly. There's something about my life that has spiritual life to it. It's just not a Sunday morning deal. It's a a seven-day-a-week deal. And so we look at this, and we talked about, I want you to grow in Jesus being built up, being stable and steady and strong in the faith, not easily overturned. He said, guys, you got to be tough now. Built up. And then I want you to be grateful for Jesus. He says, man, above all, be established. And just you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. He said, man, be grateful for Jesus. Be grateful for Jesus. Be grateful. For what he's done. What he does. Be grateful that he saved us in the midst of our depravity and darkness. Be grateful that he saved us. Therefore, that gratitude demands loyalty. Verse 8, he says, Be careful that no one takes you captive, all right, through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. So guys, just be in love with Jesus every day. Be grateful. An abundance of overflow and is evidence in our worship. Our worship should be celebrative. It should have emotion to it. It should have depth to it. It should have theology to it. And I want to tell you, our worship does. I'm very thankful for the work that our guys put in to to pray over, to seek God's direction. And uh, it's amazing how many times that that they'll do the music separate from the message and they all seem to work together. That's because we serve one Lord. It should be evident in, in ministry. Our gratefulness should show in how we serve and also in evangelism. Our gratefulness should say, I need to share the story. And one of the first indications of departure from God is a lack of gratitude for Jesus and grace. Is your life resting on a sure foundation? Try to do some teaching this morning because I want you to get something here. I want you to grab hold of this. For the next of which we're going to talk about several things that will help. But I want to tell you, you just need to be grateful for Jesus. I was invited, again, had the privilege to speak to the IBO archery tournament that took place in Armarchy this weekend, started yesterday and today, 
And uh, they had 400 and something people that, that, that participated so far. They'll have more come today. There's a write-up in the paper. Well, I was invited to do the devotion. And I thought that was pretty neat. Got up at the crack of dawn and took off to our merchant this morning. Uh, spoke at 7.30. Now, so you understand, when someone says, Pastor, why don't you come do a devotion? My goal is not to make them feel good about themselves and about the day and to be just a, uh, a little chicken soup for the soul. That's not what I do devotions for. I wanted to tell them about Jesus. So I sat there with this group, and I said, guys, I'm here. I'm thankful to be here today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I want to talk to you about the greatest thing in my life, and that is my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that Arch has been a vital part of the Bible for a long time. And it's great because the Apostle Paul was definitely a fan of athletics. And he got some great illustrations from watching the games in Rome and Greek, Greece. And he says, I, I, I want you to know, here's what he talked about the archer. He said that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Greek word picture for that word sin is a guy with a bow and arrow shooting at the bullseye. And he pulls back the, the bow, he has the arrow in place, and he lets go with the greatest intention of hitting the bullseye every single time. I said, can y'all relate to that? And they're going, yeah, we can relate to that. So I want to ask you a question. Have any of you hit the bullseye every time, all the time, any time? And they're going, no, man. Then our spirit, that's what you'd call in the Bible sin. You may be better than most. You may be better than a lot, but you're not perfect. And he said, because of that, you've missed the mark. You're trying to hit the bullseye. You may hit the target somewhere, but you missed the bullseye. You're not perfect. There's sin. And Jesus died to take care of that sin. And I asked him the question, have you dealt with your personal relationship with Christ? The most important thing for that group of people is not that they might score points and win a trophy and a tournament and a prize today. The most important thing with that group of men and women was that they may have an encounter with Jesus Christ and discover where they stand with him. Because I'm grateful for what Jesus did for me. And I want the world to know he is the solution to their dilemma, the substance for their emptiness, and the strength for their weakness. How sure is your foundation? How sure? Is your anchor placed solidly in Jesus Christ? Would you bow your heads with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed.